Greetings, Cap fans, and welcome to episode 33 of the Captain America comic book fans podcast. I am your host, Rick Verbanis, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Bob Lucius. Bob, hey, hey. Hey, Rick. Man, what's going on? It seems like it's been forever. Well, it's been a week, right? Oh, I mean, okay. yeah. yeah, I know. I know when you when it, you, you you're this long apart from me it, it it seems like an eternity but uh but you know hey we 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 catch up on the facebook page we we chat there we do we do yeah but i do look forward to our our uh, recordings and um so uh you know uh, for the most part we do these on tuesday evenings uh and then they air um the following wednesday traditionally um so if you haven't noticed yet we drop a new episode every wednesday morning like new comic book day so um but yeah here we are it's uh it's been a good week so speaking of facebook uh wanted to uh, point out uh that uh, you know we have a lot of uh, of our listeners that are on there and they were they kind of give their feedback on on our podcasts and in one of our previous podcasts if you haven't checked it out episode 30 you really should um, we had this really cool philosophical discussion with professor white um, who is the author of the virtues of captain america and uh, you know bob it's always fun wax and poetic with you uh, but this time you know we had a chance to talk with an actual professor of philosophy Mm-hmm. And um, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, so one of the uh, feedbacks uh, we got was from um, looks like his name is Joel. I'm sorry, Joel Greenlee. And he wrote, I loved all cap loved this podcast. It's what I really needed to hear. I'm really glad that no one put any politics in it. It was so refreshing to hear a great conversation with people who passionately dig my favorite hero, Captain America. Thanks, and I'm looking forward to hearing more. Well, thanks for the comment, Joel. We appreciate it. Uh, and speaking of comments, if you uh, if you don't mind, we and if you're on Apple, uh, please go to Apple and rate and review. We love five star reviews and uh, love reading your reviews. So um, please post on there because it does help uh, have get other people to uh, to to hear about us. So we appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, I, and I want to hear about it because, quite honestly, Rick, I need the boost. I need the boost. Yeah, you know, it's it is it is. Look, you and I could sit here and talk all day, and we have a lot of fun doing that, obviously. Mm-hmm. But it is nice to get some feedback. It's nice to know that people uh, do listen and they do appreciate uh, what we're talking about, and we get their feedback. Um, so yeah, that's always fun. And it's not just the feedback, right? I mean, it's it's the engagement, right? We want to know that folks that listen to the show, like, not only enjoy it, right? But maybe, it, like, it, uh, it piques some interest in something, or it raises a question for them, or uh, something they'd like us to explore further in one of the podcasts, right? I mean, we want to be engaged with folks who uh, are listening uh, and engage with each other. I'm already engaged, Bob. Sorry. <laughs> I'm taking. That's right. I forgot. Sorry, Megan. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now it is kind of cool on the Facebook page when we uh, we see people like I was inspired by such and such podcast. I went out and got these these issues. I went out and got this 
this trade paperback to read the story. So, hey, if if we're inspiring people to pick up some cap stories they've never read before, then we're doing we must be doing something right. Yeah, job job done, right? I mean, that's what that's what it's all about introducing folks to like maybe some things they hadn't thought of before or heard of before or hadn't been interested in before. So, yeah. Hey, you know, um we were uh, we also had those podcasts where we were doing reaction to the Falcon and Winter Soldier Disney Plus series. Um those were a lot of fun. We did six of those. Um and one of the characters that came up in the Falcon and Winter Soldier um, was Isaiah Bradley. And that became this huge uh, up, you know, just interest uh, on online. You know, everybody want to know who is this character? What's he about? And so for, for those of us who, who've been reading comics for a while, uh, we know about um, the miniseries called Truth, Red, White, and Black, which uh, came out in the beginning of 2003. Um, and that's where Isaiah Bradley was introduced. So we thought, uh, because, I mean, you can't get the comics nowadays. I mean, now everybody's speculating on them. I got to get the first appearance of this character. The, the prices have skyrocketed. Um, the trade paperback, the hardcover, it's really hard to find. So um, we thought it would be great for us to cover the uh, the miniseries here in in this podcast, um, but it is seven issues. It is a little long, so um, we thought we'd break it up into two episodes. So today, we're going to cover Truth, Red, White, and Black numbers one through four, and then uh, next podcast we'll cover five through seven. Yeah, and you know two things. Rick. One is uh, if anybody hadn't noticed it. That was a masterclass in a, what's called a segue in the biz. Because <laughs> <laughs> we were just, you know, jaw jack and extemporaneous, like, you know, uh, talking about the beauty of the podcast, right? But Rick just slid right into the topic for today. And that right there, folks, you know, it doesn't get any better than that, right? Hmm. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that, Bob. Um, that reminds me of a story. <laughs> Uh, okay. Um, so, you know, let, look, for those of you who um, watched Falcon Winter Soldier and aren't, you know, very familiar with the comic books, um, y- you know how that, that episode, uh, I think they called it truth, right? I think that episode, um, it got it got a little deep, got a little heavy, right? Um, sure and, did. Yeah. And, and this story is quite heavy. So I'm just going to give a little warning um, that, you know, the, this episode and next episode, we're recovering this. It is going to, you know, the topics are going to be a little heavy. We're going to get into uh, stories about racism. Um, we're going to get into stories uh, of, of what, what really this story is, you know, uh, been inspired by. So for those of you who haven't heard of the Tuskegee experiment, um, this was this is based on a true true life, right? In in the fact that um, back in 1932, um, the American government had started this um, uh, health experiment on the uh, black men in the United States, um, and essentially uh, had it as we're gonna we're gonna 
do it on untreated syphilis and um, but really didn't tell uh, the the participants in this study uh, of what this was specifically about. Um, and uh, I mean, they, they, you know, did a, they gave him free medical exams and, and uh, you know, uh, meals and things like that. Uh, and basically, you know, experimented on them to, um, to just to test syphilis. And it was, the researchers really didn't inform them of the study or its real purpose. And, and it, it, they've been misled uh, and basically was not informed consent. Um, and they, they never received adequate treatment for their disease. Uh, even, even when uh, penicillin came out 15 years later, um, they didn't use it on them. And this went on. This went on uh, from 1932, believe it or not, to 1972. And um, so uh, obviously this is a, a, a poor look on uh, the, how the American government treated, um, you know, black men uh, during this time. And, but it's, it's not alone. This isn't, this isn't the only time probably in the history um, that these types of experiments have happened. So um, uh, Axel Alonzo, who was an editor um, back in, in this time, like 2003, um, he had this idea based on, on uh, this experiment of what it would have been like for the U.S. government to have a, a black Captain America. And so he pitched the idea to um, uh, writer uh, Robert Morales. And Robert um, first kind of scoffed at the idea and, and, you know, didn't really think it was a, he didn't take it very seriously. But then he, he started to do some research on it. And, um, you know, he, he, it, it kind of depressed him a little bit. And, but he, he really wanted to do the story. Um, so he wanted to be as realistic as possible. And he, he pitched the story and, and he wrote a proposal that, quote, was so stagger staggeringly depressing, he was certain they turned it down. But they didn't. And so, uh, and so that's what this story is about. No, it's, it's worth pointing out, Rick, you know, I mean, um, you know, I, uh, I, you know, I finished a PhD not, not too long ago, and, uh, and I had to go through this whole process on informed consent. And that, you know, it was a very rigorous sort of thing just to interview people. And really, a, that in, in large part goes back to the Tuskegee uh, uh, protocols that took place from, from 32 to 72. Uh, and, and, and as you say, and, and other sorts of uh, nefarious things that researchers had done, not just on, on, uh, on, on black men, but children and women and, and mentally disabled. I mean, there were lots of lots of examples of, mm -hmm. of where science went uh, sort of askew. Uh, but one of the things I think it's really important to note, and I think it, it shows in this book, and, and we'll eventually get to it, is that, you know, syphilis is a, is a horrendous disease when left untreated, which is effectively what it was done for, for 40 years, left untreated, uh, and, and essentially observed, right? And in those end stages, after the sort of slow cognitive decline, it results in really essentially a vegetable state, um, a dementia, 
where the individual no longer has, you know, um, control over their their body or um, their their any of their faculties. So I mean, it's a horrible, horrible disease, um, and so it's just uh, it's just a terrible, terrible thing to even think about. But but we'll I think we'll see see hints of that as the story plays out. Right. And 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 so. Robert Morales went ahead and uh, wrote this story um, and it, it did get some critical reaction. Um, Mildly you know, put. Yeah. Yeah. So um, especially, you know, in the beginning when, you know, they, they pitched the idea and there was a cover and I'll, I'll, I'll show you, you know, explain the cover to, to the first issue. And it's, there are red and white stripes uh, that are vertical in the background in the foreground we have a silhouette uh of a uh, a black man with a um uh i don't know some sort of you know handkerchief wrapped around his head tied in the back it's a do-rag it looks okay. like a do-rag yeah uh but the big white star on his chest and uh so it's, and and from the silhouette you can tell that it is a black man and so when when this image first went out and it was here's a black man in a Captain America costume, um, the there was some some you know positive reaction, but there's some negative reaction and some visceral reaction and and mostly from people who just can't stand the idea of seeing a black man in a Captain America costume. Um so you know, that was initial on and, and, but by the time the, the, the story ended, um, I think, uh, the critical acclaim was, was pretty positive. Um, so, and, and if you don't, you know, if you may recognize the name Robert Morales, um, from Captain America, he did, um, follow it up after this story. He did write eight issues of the, uh, volume four, which was the Marvel Knights series, um, and he did write, uh, if you remember, uh, like the Chris Boccolo, uh, issues where he was doing the art, um, Morales was doing the writing and, uh, it, it actually finished with, um, with a story, uh, with Isaiah Bradley. Um, oddly enough though, he only was like eight issues into like his year and a half contract and then, um, uh, left, but, yeah. um, so he, you know, uh, that's where you might recognize him for some Captain America. Well, I mean, and I think I think you know one of the reasons he gave for for leaving was that um, you know they really wanted that his writing to sort of be sort of uh, in support of uh, the Avengers run at the time, you know, along with the Iron Man and the Hulk and some of the other characters as well. And he had sort of some ideas uh, of where to take Cap that sort of focused on. Um, contemporary issues um, and exploring contemporary, you know, society. And he just didn't like where that was going. And so I think they decided to just split ways. Yep. That sometimes happens. Um, Now the artist on this series uh, is Kyle Baker and uh, Kyle, uh, he he did the penciling, uh, the inking, the coloring. And um, he has a, a cartoony, type style um you might remember him from about 10 years ago where he brought brought back and revitalized plastic man for dc um he he won eisner awards for that harvey awards for that 
Um, so he is an, an award-winning artist, but he does have a cartoonish type style. Um, uh, he, he himself is a black man. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the style of art for this is not for everybody uh, in this series, um, especially if you like more of a realistic type uh, artwork. But it, I, I think it has a, a feel to it that does lend itself to a period piece, um, you know, because, you know, back back in back then uh, when comics were out, they weren't very realistic, you know. So there, it, it may it may have they may have been trying to go for that a little bit here too. Um, and then wrapping this up, uh, we have, like I said, uh, Axel Alonso is the editor. So that's the creative team. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's worth. I mean, we see this all the time in the in the Facebook group, right? Where like somebody really doesn't like uh, a particular artist and is sort of like gets kind of closed off to the story, right? I mean, all of us feel that way. There's some artists that really connect with us and some that just don't connect at all with. And we got to kind of have to power through uh, in order to, to be able to, to see sort of the richness of the writing. And I think, I think when this came out, quite frankly, and for a long time until even just recently, I think a lot of folks didn't give this series um, its due because maybe they they looked at it and the, and the art just didn't connect with them. And so they didn't sort of push on through to see where it led. And I think that's a big mistake in any art, whether, you know, whether it's this series or whether it's a, you know, particular cap volume, maybe that doesn't appeal to folks or a cap artist that doesn't appeal to folks. You gotta, you gotta put it out there, man, and try it because sometimes the writing makes it worthwhile and then the art will connect with you in the long run. Yeah. Very well put, Bob. I, I couldn't have said any better. Um, one last thing before we get into the story, I know we've been going on, but um, there is some controversy on whether or not Steve Rogers was the first Captain America, was I, Isaiah Bradley the first Captain America, and I, I'll just say that this story, while it starts in July of 1940, the experiments on the soldiers didn't happen until May of 1942, so um, that puts it uh, with with Captain America coming out in March of 1941, uh, that's the cover date. I mean, it was released December 20th, 1940, um, that, no, Steve Rogers is the first super soldier um, and that these experiments were done to try to replicate uh, the lost serum. Um, and as you can imagine, uh, based, unfortunately, in some reality, that, you know, are they going to go ahead and start experimenting on a bunch of, of white soldiers? Unlikely. Uh, it, so they instead experiment on black soldiers. And that's what this story is about. Um, uh, at least that's how it starts. So we start off uh, with a couple uh, looking like they're, they're getting their photo. And uh, they give a big old cheese. And it's Queens, New York, July, 1940. That day was pretty much our honeymoon. We had our picture taken on the corner of Rainbow Avenue. And it's a, a nice looking couple uh, wearing uh, suits. And uh, they are uh, in New York at the World's Fair. The World's Fair had declared a Negro week. A whopping 75 cents admission could buy you the dream of equality for a whole day. 
And this is truth, part one, the future. And so here we are uh, at the World's Fair. And um, sh sure enough, it is, uh, it looks like a Negro day because it it's uh, all we can see. Um, the entire crowd is black and there's children, there's older uh, older people, there's couples, and they're all smiling, having a good time walking around the fair. That is until somebody decided it didn't. So Isaiah's wife says, Isaiah, did you hear that W.E.B. Dubois himself is supposed to be talking here today? Yeah, baby. What's the man supposed to be saying? Oh, it's something about how Negroes have to learn their place, how we have to give up on our hopes to ourselves. You know how he is. And he gives her a look, stern look, and she gives a stern look right back. I swear, Faith, you're lucky you, fr you finally got yourself a man that don't take you serious. Ha ha, and it's seriously. Ouch, don't kill me, baby. By this time, we wandered into what they called the amusement area of the fair. This part wasn't so high-minded. And then here we are, and there's a, uh, a guy up on a stage in front of a tent, uh, and there's a picture of a scantily clad lady next to him, and it's a barker. Step right up, everybody. Inside, she's real. Only 15 cents, and you can bear witness to a bevy of international beauties and their natural splendor. What in the world? Girl, stands to reason. Even the future has to have a bad part of town. We'll take two tickets, please. And the barker looks extremely embarrassed. And he whispers to the guy, uh, Hold on there, son. I can't let you in. Why not? Our money's good. Come on, son. Don't be that way. And he's starting to sweat. Why not? You ain't giving me a reason. It's Negro Reek, right? Yeah, but look, it's it's the girls, okay? They'll get upset. They don't like being looked at like they're animals. You know how they are. Of all the... Isaiah, honey, don't. And she's holding him back. Now we cut to the East of Broad area in Philadelphia, December 1940. And there is a butler at the door. And a guy's coming into the front door and he's got a jacket and, and hat on. Young Master Maurice, what a surprise. Good afternoon, Leonard. Are my parents home? And he looks like he's just been in a nasty fight. And the butler takes his jacket and hat. The master hasn't returned, but Mrs. Canfield is in the study. Can I get Cook to make you something? No, don't trouble yourself. Believe me, I'm a lot better off than the other guys. And his shirt's all tattered. And he walks into a very expensive uh, home. And uh, there's a lady sitting on the couch reading. Hello, Mama. What are you reading? Well, young man, I'm reading a novel by Philip Wiley about a troublesome young man, much like yourself, named Finley Wren, and she sees him. Oh, Lord. I'm okay, Mama. It was just one of those things. Your father will have a fit when he ceases how you came home from the holidays. What happened? You remember Jules Edelman? He and I went to New Jersey last weekend to organize some 
Steve Dwarves in Newark. Steve Dwarves. Steve Dwarves. Okay. You know what Steve Dwarves are? I have no idea. Those are the guys that unload ships that come in from the docks. Maritime okay. guys. Navy Thank guys. Navy, naval guys know that stuff. I wouldn't know that. Okay. Steve Dwarves, unload the ships. I don't give a ship. <laughs> you remember Jules Edelman? He and I went to New Jersey last weekend to organize some stevedores in Newark. Oh, Lord, your father will. I would expect father di to digest this with his usual stoic compassion. In any event, these fellows in Newark did not have father's sturdy constitution. Listening to a Negro and a Jew give them counsel about their economic survival, let alone their social responsibilities, proved too much for the lads. And... And one of them brought the meeting to a swift conclusion with a stream of inventive, much of it about you, actually, culminating with, I never heard brotherhood meant I had to end my long day of toil consorting with kikes and jinks, to which you opined as to the likelihood of such association throughout his lineage. Yes. Ultimately, the raucous led to an incomprehensible sequence of mishaps that leaned an icy barge port enough for the lot of us to comically glissade into the Hudson. Child, you are a fool. Why, Mama? Because I think we should stand up for ourselves? Because if enough people at the bottom learn to work together, there might be some advancement for Negroes? Because you are reckless. Because you think that story about how you could have been killed might afford me some amusement only because you were lucky. Because you have a station in life. Your father worked. My father earned his mother. And mine is something I have to earn for myself. And he pulls out a cigarette from his case. And she looks at him. The cigarette, dear. Not in the house. I don't want a fortune based on Negroes that are compelled to lighten their skins and straighten their hair, especially when they turn around and take their self-hatred out on me. You are 25 years old. You are a man. You have to think about starting a family and getting your life in order. And then there's a slam at the door. All right, my atheist, socialist, reckless love. Go give your father a hug and wish him a happy holiday. All right, we cut to the next scene, and we're in a bar, and there is a man uh, about shooting pool, and he's got a pipe hanging out of his mouth. He's got a, he's bald. He's got a huge scar um, and cysts on the side of his head, and it's Blue Niles Billiards, Cleveland, June 1941, so we just skipped from December to June. Hey, hey, black cap. So the man with the pipe in his mouth turns and gives a dirty glare. And the guys in the crowd go, oh, boy, look out. Stupid. And um, this guy and this uh, big guy in an orange suit, what I say? And so the, the, the guy with the, the billiard in his hand comes walking up and says, only a fool who's been incarcerated for six years would be so ill-informed to call me that or somebody looking for a whooping. Dallas Huxley, when they let you out, and he smiles, this morning, 
You get to work yet? Work some. When I got to the depot, fellow noticeable as you, and you can still dip a wallet? Well, all right. Eight ball can always use some scratch to liven things up. Two bits a game? So they don't call you Black Cap no more? Nope. Got busted down a sergeant. Been about four months now. You break. Damn. So now I'm Sarge, or Luke, again. But you just call me Mr. Evans. And so the guy scratches on the on the break. For those who don't know, billiards, uh, that's when the, the white cue ball uh, basically goes into a pocket. Uh, and technically the game's over. Um, so now uh, Luke here goes and he, he goes and uh, breaks. Six years is a long time to not, to not shoot pool. Okay, I got the stripes because he knocked a few of the strike balls in. Can I ask what happened, Sarge? Six ball in the side. And he gets it in. Remember Frank Wilson? You went through basic with him. Yeah, the Boy Scout. The very same. He became an MP while you were inside. Well, Frank got sent with this other guy over to Columbus to pick up some AWOL peckerwood who spent the night in the drunk tank. The guy escaped? No. Turns out the desk sergeant didn't want to hand him over to no colored man. So Frank has words with the guy, and the other cops jump in, and before you know it, clubs fry, and Frank is dead. The other MP, white boy, got sent to the hospital. Damn. I went to the CO after he announced Frank was in the wrong. Life between colors and whites on that base haven't improved much since you were there. So I tell him my guy's morale was rock bottom. And you got busted for that? No, for shoving him when he told me not to bother him with trifles, like a man's life is a trifle. Damn, I got to make water. That's a bad break, man. It is what it is. Maybe I'll make captain again in another 17 years. If anything, I learned something. This is the only place I get to shove old Whitey around. And then he goes to hit the cue ball again. Next page. Pearl Harbor, December 1941. And it's an aerial view of the, the, uh, the military base and dozens of Japanese fighter planes coming in to attack. Cleveland, December 1941. So we skip some time here. And we go back to Luke, and he's in his room. He's got a pistol on his left hand. And he grabs the pistol. And he looks like he's about to commit suicide. And he hears from outside. Did you hear? The Japs just bombed the U.S. We're in it now. And then he grabs, said he puts the pistol down and he grabs the bottle of uh, some sort of adult beverage, pours it into a glass and says, well, all right. All right. All right. Next page, Philadelphia, January of 1942. And we're in a court and there is a uh, white judge sitting and he's about to give sentence. 
Son, these are serious times, and therefore the court is compelled to set a serious example. We have Maurice uh, standing in a suit with his lawyer. Demonstrating against our war effort is tantamount to sedition, for which this court can sentence you to 20 years hard labor. But as you have no prior criminal record and you come from a respected family, this court will allow you to choose the example to be made today. You could do the time, son, or you could choose to redress your actions. You can enlist and serve your nation with honor. It's up to you. New York City, February 1942. And we got Isaiah. He's all dressed up and ready to ship out. He says, don't worry, baby. I'm coming back to you. I promise. And he reaches over and he kisses his, his wife, who is pregnant. And it says, that was the first of the worst days of my life to be continued. All right. Now, episode two, issue two um, of Truth, Red, White, and Black, uh, has the, the ongoing theme of the red and white vertical stripes. Uh, but this time, uh, there is a bunch of, it's like a battalion of uh, black soldiers wearing, um, you know, their uniform with the, the uh, matching colored caps. And instead of being in front of the, the, uh, the red stripes, they're behind it, almost, almost as if they're like bars uh, behind uh, like jail. It's an interesting look. All right, so the title to issue two is The Basics. Camp Cathcart, Mississippi, May of 1942. And here we have a bunch of black soldiers that are walking and they've got backpacks on and they're, they're covered, uh, it appears to be feces uh, because of the color and the smell lines that are coming off and the flies that are following and some of the white soldiers are like, damn, holding their nose. What the? And one of the smaller guys um, he says, what? Nobody, nobody mind when, they were, when we were digging their latrines. Don't say nothing. And then we cut to um, a white suited gentleman, not, not military suit, but a business suit who is standing looking out uh, a window of um, officer headquarters. And the officer says, two battalions? What do you want two battalions of colored soldiers for? You looking to mop up a battlefield? And he's sitting behind a desk in his suit. Um, and the guy who's looking out the window says, that's classified, Major. And then there's a guy sitting in a big comfy chair in a suit. Please, Mr. Tully, perhaps if we were more candid with Major Brackett. That's your call, Reinstein. First off, what kind of doctor are you? I am a psychiatrist and a surgeon. I am working with your government to enhance the combat performance of your troops. And you want these soldiers? It's necessary to see if our methods apply to the inferior races. He's trying to turn straw into gold, Major. 
So we cut back to uh, the barracks, and one of the uh, soldiers in full gear just lies down on his bed. JJ, you crazy? You got to sleep in that. Got laundry detail later anyways. Don't need to waste no more shut-eye. And he just puts his head down on the pillow with his helmet on and everything. Guys, how come we had to crawl through a cow pasture? We do something wrong. Because the army don't need no because. Well, boys, I usually do. You missed mail call. And here's Luke. Walking in with a pile of mail on his, in his, under his arm. Plum, Bradley, Larson. Sarge, how come you had us in that field? Hester, Pitts. Here you go, Jack Harvey. Any of you fellows want to tell Jack why you all reek right now? No? Don't be surprised if someday you might have to fight in this army. That you might reek after days in the field. That's not hard to figure. But if you're new, fresh in the field, or back from RSR, battle involves skill, but it also involves luck. And not everybody is lucky enough to pick off the enemy from yards away. You might have to engage the enemy hand-to-hand, calling each other's face to get any advantage. The enemy may stink to high heaven, so much that a man not expecting it might be put back in shock. You might kill one man hand-to-hand and not be prepared for the smell when he lets go. Then some guy behind him gets to kill you. Boys, you are your best weapon. Any kind of hesitation on your part will definitely mean that you die in this war. So then we cut back to uh, the major in his office. Doctor, a lot of this is over my head, but I still don't see why you need so many colored men for this program of yours. Have you ever heard of the Black Vine, Major? The Black Vine? I can't say I have, Mr. Tully. As we understand it, Negroes have their own secret means for spreading news by word of mouth. Among themselves, it's called the Black Vine. I have heard the Fuhrer himself envies their methods and has orchestrated his Schustaffel to improve upon them. You're saying you're training colored soldiers as counter-spries? What I'm saying is this project is classified. What I'm saying is we don't need all these Negro men. And then uh, we get to Isaiah, and he's holding a picture of his wife Faith and their baby girl. Ain't they beauty, Sarge? Faith and baby Bradley. Well, all right. Fine-looking family. Guess Bradley ain't always shooting blanks. What you naming your girl? Sarah Gale. I think after her grandmamas. Guess they what we fighting for, huh? Not me, brother. I'm looking to kill me some white mans. Larson, why you gotta be like that? What? Why... Why do I got to be colored? Just keep one thing in mind, Larson. Killing white men is a gift you only get from other white men. Hey, Sarge, what's your take on this? And he points to a a symbol that says democracy at home and abroad. Dang, little Lord Fotheroy has another cause. Double V for victory, at home and abroad. Symbols are well and good for non-combatants, 
but they're just foolishness if you want to win on the battlefield. If you have to fight, shouldn't you fight for the right things? The Nazis got a symbol too. And then the guy who went and laid on the bed with uh, all his stuff still on, he sits up and stretches. Let's throw them both in a drawer and see which one makes it out and let, let a tired colored man sleep. And everybody starts laughing. Except for Maurice. Maurice, wait, the guy's just having fun. Yeah, well, I'm just going to the camp. Hey, Sarge, listen here. Do you think Fauntleroy, he act a little funny? And Sarge looks at him, gives him a dirty look. If that boy's funny, Lawson, then I'm freaking hilarious. So Maurice goes storming off. And he walks pretty far, gets to the officer's headquarters, and there's a latrine outside. So he's doing his business. And there's a guy from behind says, looks like you got the cart before the horse, smelling like you do. And there's three of them. Whole lot of yellow wasted on you, sorry butt boy, especially if you can't spiff yourself up to army regs. It's like I've been saying all along, fellas. We should ship these niggers to the Pacific so they could fight those yellow belly monkeys to monkey. Ha! Morris didn't like that, so he punches the guy right in the face. And he falls down. But another guy grabs him from behind, another guy starts hitting him, and then it's three against one. And they're, well, they're beating him up. What in the hell is all this commotion? Can't I show my guests to the toilet without exposing them to insubordination? You, boy, do you need any special attention? Maury says, no, sir, just got the wind knocked out of me. Then get up and return to your unit. And you morons, get back to the motor pool. So Maurice is back in the barracks. And Larson says, what did you do to get, get him mad, Larson? And then Luke comes in. Sarge, what the hell happened to you, Canfield? I got set upon by those unable to comprehend the plumbing needs of the average Negro soldier. No fooling. They see anything? And he smiles. Well, Sarge, honestly, how could they not? Good man. Okay, soldiers, listen up. At 2300 hours tonight, we are to take part in a special night training exercise. We'll be traveling light without weapons or gear to a classified location where we will then receive further orders. No gear or weapons, Sarge? Father Roy, what'd you really do, man? They're taking it out on us. Pipe down, Lawson. Those are our orders. So you guys rest up. Night training exercise, my ass. What now? Crackers want to see if we are visible. Next page, Camp Cathcart, 2,300 hours. And if uh, from the cover, as I mentioned, uh, the battalion of black soldiers, uh, they're all standing there. And there's 300 of them. And so we have the major there uh, with the two suited fellas standing and uh, a couple corporals around. We're just about ready to, and a guy uh, a little bigger than the Major, who's a big man, comes up, Major Brackett, 
Yes. Colonel Warkle Price, Military Intelligence. I'm under orders to relieve you of your command. Mr. Tully, Dr. Einstein. What in the hell are you talking about? You can't just walk in and he hands him a, an order. Direct from command, Major. I don't get it, Colonel. This seems to say that you're shutting down the entire camp in wartime. Sorry, Major. And he pulls his gun out. What? Guards! These men have been M.I. all along. But still, to answer your question, Camp Cathcart never existed. And he shoots the Major right in the head. Kills him. And the soldiers that are standing out there, what in hell? But Larson, who, he's the, the, the little mean guy, he's like, now that's what I'm talking about. So the colonel points and says, Tully, you and the doctor go ahead while we mop up here. I'll catch up with you at one, at, I'll catch up with you at 0100. Lieutenant, gather 300 Negro soldiers and get them on those trucks ASAP. We're moving out. Yes, sir. He's a short little pudgy guy. Sergeant, I need you and your men on truck now. What's happening, Lieutenant? Just do as I say, boy, and you and your men just might make it out of this. And sure enough, they're uh, loading up onto six trucks here. And then he says, we got enough, soldier. Just keep them right there. And he's talking to one of the white soldiers that's holding a machine gun. Okay, that's it. Take off. Okay, soldier. Don't take too long with these boys. And the trucks pull away. And the soldiers all of a sudden look scared. And on the truck, you saw, uh, we got uh, Larson. You fellas see the way his head just popped open? And he gets punched in the face. Don't say nothing. Sarge, is that shooting I'm hearing? To be continued. So the 300 soldiers that made it on the truck are getting shipped out. And soldiers that didn't make it on the truck, looks like they're getting executed. Because this camp never existed. Uh, you know, there's other than, you know, there's just, there's a lot of stuff woven in, <clears throat> into the writing, right? <clears throat> so you're like, when Maury shows that, uh, that document to, uh, to Luke, you know, to Sarge, the, the double V, that, that was an actual uh, document in a movement during the war, black soldiers. It was a V against uh, a victory against fascism, but a victory against racism as well. Uh, and that was, uh, that was an actual movement that was uh, underfoot with, uh, with black soldiers during the war, thinking that if they went and they fought against the fascists, that that would help them fight racism at home and that they would finally be recognized as, uh, as equals. So it's great how, uh, how, um, how Robert Morales has tried to, to weave real history into this narrative. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's that's good backstory. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So here we are, uh, issue three. It's a uh, blue cover. Um and I would say the same color blue that's associated with Cap's uniform in the background. And then the red and white stripes that uh, we talked about that have been constant uh, is now the the color of a table. Um, and on this uh, operating table and the black silhouette of a man is strapped to this table and there is a IV bag going into him. So the title is The Passage. The Bronx, New York, June 1942. La, 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 we're here, honey. Mommy's going to make you a nice... We cut to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And there's a, uh, a chaplain and a soldier coming to the door. Good day, Leonard. I'm afraid we're here to see Mr. and Mrs. Canfield. And then we see um, Isaiah's wife, Faith, uh, reading the letter that she got. And then we see the butler uh, looking astonished. So, I mean, we know what this means, right? Right? I mean, this is is something that... uh... I mean, anybody who's ever been around military knows knows what this means when a chaplain and an officer shows up at your door. That's not good news. Right. So then we get back to the colonel that killed the major, and he's on the phone. And he says, I said I want Negro blood. And we're at Project Super Soldier, location classified. And it looks like they're in some underground cavern. And he's sitting at a desk. Uh, No, Sergeant, that's not nearly enough. No, we can't wait until it's shipped from. And then uh, one of the uh, civilians that was before uh, is now sitting at one of the in the comfy chair. And he says, you know, Reinstein vigorously asserts there's really no difference between Caucasian and colored blood. And the colonel says, is that so? And the corporal's like, no, and he looks like so dejected. Okay, sergeant, then send us a thousand units of Caucasian blood. What? What do you mean, what do I want with it? Do you want to transfer into infantry, sergeant? Would that satisfy your curiosity? That's what I like to hear, sergeant. And I want that blood ASAP, you hear? Don't put it on colored people time. That's a good one, colonel. So what do you say to that, Lieutenant? Someday Negro blood might save your life on the battlefield. I'd rather die, sir. Well, Tully, I think we'll have to keep that doctor's revelation top secret as well. So that's um, that's just a, a you know just to point out, uh, you know, here it is, nineteen forty-two. 
right? So 80 years ago, um, there was still misconception about about different types of blood. Uh, and uh, quite frankly, uh, you know, the racism of, well, I, I'd rather die than have a Negro blood in, in my body. Um, and, you know, that was, that's how some people felt. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's not, let's not, let's not beat around the bush. Rick. I mean, some people still, still feel that way that uh, there is some genetic difference and, and there isn't. And that's sort of like the, sort of the mystery, right? I mean, of this whole process, this whole narrative is, is built on this mythology, this, this misbelief that somehow it's different in some way. Hmm. All right. So we cut to observation room number two and there is uh, a black soldier who is naked tied to a table, just like we had uh, on the cover. Uh, and there's a soldier there with a gun saying, try to relax. And there, uh, there are all kinds of white doctors and scientists uh, around him. Um, and we have someone who is observing, looking in, and speaks on the intercom. Very well. It is 1,700 hours. Again, we administer five cc's of the serum now to subject A23. Nurse, please proceed with the injection. So nurse comes up and injects him, and she whispers, good luck. The serum has been administered. Please evacuate the observation room. And they do, and they leave, and the metal door locks behind them. And the soldier just lays there waiting. And then he starts to sweat. You see a look of panic on his face. And then he says, Mother Mary. And his body just starts to balloon up and expand. His head, his neck, his his entire body just starts to get bigger and bigger. And he's he's struggling to get out of the uh, the strands. And he's like, oh. And then off panel, you see a blood just spurt and hit the the windows. So apparently he burst. Subject A twenty three expired at seventeen. 18 hours. Now it is certain that five cc's of the serum is too much. And then there's some guys walking in, including a guy with a mop. So we cut back to uh, Isaiah's bride, Faith, and she's being consoled. They said it was some kind of explosion. Poor Isaiah was. And then we cut to uh Maurice's mother and father who are um, clutching each other as the chaplain uh, is there and, and the soldier next to him says, apparently it was a tragic accident involving explosives. Maurice didn't stand. A... And then we go to Cleveland and the, uh, the guy that um, had just uh, come out after six years and was playing pool. He hears the news. Sergeant Evans dead. So then we we cut back to um, the the barracks where they're they're being experiment, experimented on, and it's psst, hey, Flantroy, who the Flantroy? How do I look? And there's Lamar, who used to be this scrawny guy, and he's now he's huge, and his head kind of deformed, and his he's just like unnaturally huge, and. Sarge says, well, Larson, since you're the first dog face to come back, you look great. 
Three days later in Philadelphia, and we're at the funeral, dust to dust. Then we cut back to the experiments. Then we cut back to Cleveland, and they're saluting to Sarge, having a toast to Lucas Evans. And now Lucas Evans is on the table, and the nurse is injecting him, saying, good luck. And we're at the Bronx, and uh, Faith is there at a funeral home. And she's talking to the funeral director, and he says, in circumstances where the casket is closed, Mrs. Bradley, I don't recommend Isaiah is my husband. And now we cut to Isaiah. He's, he's about to be experimented on. Please evacuate the observation room. And I want to see him. And it looks like five guys made it. They're all huge. And they're all, um, you know, they, they've got various forms of where either their chests or arms or you know, are all blown up except except for uh, Lamar. Lamar still got that deformed head. So Faith goes into the uh, casket. She opens it up to take a look, and she she gasps. So then we cut back to um, where we were in the secret base, and uh, all of the the white scientists and doctors are all celebrating, and they're popping champagne and had. There's music playing, and um, so the two uh, the two guys that were there originally says, the president sends his con- uh, congratulations, Reinstein. He says, you might have just won the war for us, but that is premature. I do not consider these men ready. And the colonel who's dancing with the nurse says, doctor, you need to learn to take your rewards as they come. The word from our friends in British intelligence is that your former cohort, Dr. Koch, has his super soldier operation in full swing. Perhaps the Nazis are more enlightened in their racial theories than your superiors. Ha <laughs> still grousling about our test pool, are you? Get ready to take on your fatherland, doctor. We're packing up. And classified shipyard. 130 hours. It's early in the morning. 130? 0-130. Bob, you want to do this one? Oh, 130 is good. You don't want to work for No, you. come on, Bob. Say it. I want to hear it. Uh, all right, here we go. You ready? I'm going to do my radio voice. Classified shipyard. 0-130 hours. Oh, that's it. That's all I got for you, man. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so um, we got seven... Seven looks like seven soldiers that uh, that made it through uh, of the three hundred. Yikes! So they're getting onto a ship, single file line, and uh, there's a bunch of white soldiers with machine guns around them. So they don't look exactly free. Um, so they have to go down into uh, to the hold of this big ship. And uh, one of the one of the guys says to Isaiah, "I'm not feeling so good." That's okay, Jack. I've never been on no boat before either. And um, then we go back to Philadelphia at the home of uh, Maurice's father and mother. And the father is looking up at the sky in the, in the evening. And his wife says, honey, honey, you should come to bed. And he has a gun in his hand. 
and then off panel you see a blam and then another one so apparently he was distraught and he couldn't take it and he killed his wife and shot himself so we're back in the ship and we're back with the seven soldiers now uh jack's lying on the on the cot because he's not feeling well a few guys are playing cards a couple other guys are talking and uh i think isaiah is saying to jack you know don't fret jack sarge will bring the doc back hey maurice you okay i don't know dave i just got this dread sarge come over and says is he doing any better Nah, Sarge. The doc coming? Doc will come down in the morning, Jack. You stay strong till then, okay, soldier? And as he's looking at him, Jack looks up, and his face is transposed with a... looks like a... like a... an African face, you know? He's got paint uh, on his face and on his head. And he's he's breaking into a sweat. It's almost like a fever sweat. But what he's seeing is definitely seeing Africans. Sarge. And then uh, Lamar says, Jack's over eights, you huckleberries. Got to put up a better fight when we go, go, go killing Krauts. Hey, Sarge, what was the biggest battle you fought? The biggest? That would be after the Great War in Washington, D.C. And they all turn and look at him. What? The Red Summer in quotes, is what everybody called it later. It was the war at home. It was a Saturday, July 19, 1919. The war was done, and colored and cracker dog faces were taking weekend liberty in the capital, me among them. He gets out his pipe and lights it. Word got, got around the Metro police let loose a colored man they questioned in the rape of a white woman. Naturally, since cops let guilty colored men go every day. Hundreds of white townies and dog faces hit the street looking for justice. They paraded southwest to the colored part of D.C., picking up pipes and clubs and bits of lumber as they went. And by the way, we see Jack Reilly's getting bad sweats here and grimacing. And he's, he's seeing more Africans around him. And it turns out think these were these were slaves that were aboard a ship that came over from Africa to America. They beat and lynched any colored man they came across. One fellow was yanked right off a streetcar. They beat women and children. They beat a man right in front of the White House. And nobody, not the cops, not President Wilson, lifted a finger to stop them. That's when we decided it was up to us colored veterans and upstanding churchgoers and businessmen and low-life hoodlums banded together. By that Monday, D.C.'s colored bought 500 firearms from pawn shops. Automobiles were reinforced with steel plates to plow into white crowds. We set up barricades on New Jersey and U, U avenues. We had sharpshooters posted on the Howard Theater. We were ready for them. And then we went after them. And we killed enough of them in D.C. and 19 other cities that summer that the lynching stopped. For a spell, anyway. Damn. That's one hell of a story. Sarge? Jack's gone. And we look and there's Jack 
with the the slaves floating above, looking down on his body and his, his friends. To be, continue. Yeah, and again, Rick, right? I mean, Morales has, uh, has done his homework, man, because that red summer of 1919, it's the real deal. Yep. Yeah, it actually not, did happen, yeah. Yeah, it's not something, you know, most of us hear about. It's not something we're taught, right? But, or uh, anything we're proud of. Right. It's, uh, but it's, it's the real deal. So, you know, as we read this, uh, we read this book, man, it behooves anybody who's interested in history, interested in the history of the United States to like dig into some of this stuff because Morales, again, really, you know, he's done, he's gone above and beyond doing the homework to sort of weave real history into this narrative. Yeah. No, he absolutely is doing a masterful job of, of bringing everything together um, because it's it's history, it's uh, bringing in the mythos of Captain America, and intertwining uh, you know some personal stories you know from from these men from from different places um, in their in in the culture and, and uh, in America. So we're looking at uh, the cover of four. This is the last one we'll do for this episode. So it's, uh, this is again the red and white stripes. In the background, we have a black silhouette, and it's a uh, super soldier, and he is holding up a smaller white soldier. And the title to this one is The Cut. So we're at the U.S. Army Headquarters, New York City, July 1942. And there's Faith, uh, Isaiah's wife, and she's in a lovely pink dress and a hat. And she's standing, and there's a uh, a woman behind the counter in uh, military uh, dress, and she says, "Hold on, I'll get you a meeting with the with the major right away." And so she goes in, and she's talking with uh, the major, who uh, is not he's behind a desk, and he says, "Lady, do I have to spell it out to you in black and white to make allegations like these when your husband was clearly burned beyond recognition?" So what you're saying is that the army could tell me what charred my husband into a skinny, dead white man? And she goes storming out. And uh, there's a a black soldier behind her saying, Miss, please wait. What? They send you down here to explain things to me in color? Miss, Mrs. Ma'am. He takes his hat off. Mrs. Bradley, I'm Corporal Eddie Himes. Yes. This isn't something people talk about, even in the Army. You understand? But you strike me as a strong woman. Go on. When there's an explosion, it's mostly impossible to identify the remains of the fallen, you see. So the Army counts all of the men as one, and they try to give enough to each family so they could put their man to rest. You understand? And she looks down. No, I hear you. I won't ever get Isaiah back. So we cut over into, uh, at that very moment, in Germany's Black Forest. And we see the uh, the seven super soldiers here that are cutting through uh, a German squad. And um, there's a lot of them. Um, so they're taking a few casualties of their own. Um, but it's a pretty gruesome fight scene 
there's some, it's really gruesome. Um, and they, uh, the super soldiers are all wearing uh, black uh, and uh, they have black gear uh, and they, they've got their weapons and they're firing, but they're, they're also taking some hits as well. Um, and uh, there's a scene where one of the, uh, the guys come up and gets one of the German soldiers from behind. He starts to choke him and it's Isaiah. Uh, and the German says, ack, ack. And then uh, Sarge comes over and says, oh, for Pete's sake. And he cracks the skull. And uh, Maurice is flipping around, shooting people. And uh, one of the German soldiers is running away. Afrikaner? And he's running, and he bounces into Lamar. Hey, now, where are you going? We got us some unfinished fun, huh? And he picks him up by the throat. Guess what? You're my first white man. Nine. I killed me a lot of men and women. Killed me some kids, too. And one thing I learned, it's best to take your time. Yeah, fight me. Huh? And then... Somebody throws a grenade at his feet, and Lamar says, damn. And then, of course, it goes off and kills both of them. And Sarge says, Larson, Sarge, look at this. It's not, and he, and he goes to the back of a truck, and he, he opens it up. It's not guns. It's medical supplies. My God, what are we doing, Sarge? All our guys are dead. Because we didn't want want the enemy to get their bandages? What kind of soldiering keeps the wounded from being human beings? Maurice, listen to me. We did what we had to. We'll do a lot more than this if we want to get home. So we cut to uh, another scene, and it's, it's um, in uh, Portugal in September of 1942. And there's Isaiah... And uh, he's sitting there reading a comic book, and it happens to be Captain America number one. Isaiah, what are you reading that nonsense for? I like funny books, Sarge. Be making making me my own if I could draw a lick. So I traded some chocolate for this one with uh, one of those Red Ball Express grease monkeys before we left Spain, but what's that? Don't it make you curious? I mean, the comic came out more than a year ago, but it pretty much got our whole story. It was Doc Reinstein, the drug we got, and this Steve Rogers fella the brass is so high on. But this is happening now, right? Not last year, so, son, let me put it to you like this. Comic books aren't real. This is a war. And in a war, the Army decides everything is government issue. That means maybe Reinstein isn't the doc's name. Maybe the army found cause to commandeer that book of yours. Who could say? I sure know one thing. If the army determines they need a Steve Rogers, they're going to move heaven and hell to get one, the poor bastard. Don't give the man too much sympathy, Sarge. This is supposed to be a clandestine rendezvous. You wouldn't believe the welcome wagon they're putting out for this fellow Rogers. Someone we've only seen in the newspapers while we take all the risks coming out of the woodwork to lead our mission. And then um, uh, the, uh, the lieutenant, uh, the uh, short little pudgy guy, 
white guy. He comes walking up. You shut your trap, Canfield. Better control your men, Evans. What'd he do, Lieutenant? He has no respect for what HQ deems best for the war effort back home. He's cracking wise what we're setting up. I saw his costume, Sarge. We'll look like minstrels led by a Confederate circus clan into battle. Your kind can never be good enough to wear that sacred uniform. We shouldn't even have you in this man's army. Well, we're here, Lieutenant. What are you going to do about it? Really, Merritt? What else could you do? Maurice, back off. You think you're as good as me? You're living on fool's gold, boy, no matter how much of your dead pappy's money you got waiting. My father? Couldn't handle losing his whelp in the war, so he shot your mammy to death, then himself. And Maurice punches the lieutenant. And they grab him, hold him. Maurice, stop. And he flips Isaiah over the edge, like, like over, uh, over the top of this castle, over the edge. I mean, that's, that's not good. And then, um, Sarge is like, you crazy maniac. And they're fighting each other. And then Maurice, uh, grabs a, breaks off a piece of the, uh, the castle and just big piece of wall and just nails him. And then he stands over him. And is this, you know, hey, if you watch Falcon and Winter Soldier, this looks very much like John Walker right now, holding up his shield to a defenseless man. And he is. He's holding up this piece of wall over Sarge, and he kills him. And then the lieutenant, standing there, he says, what can I do, boy? And he holds a gun on Isaiah. So then we cut to the next scene. And uh, the lieutenant is on a uh, hospital bed. And he's got like a cast all over his head and neck. And uh, and they said private merit. So he's been demoted. Got off easy with a broken collarbone. Don't you think, soldier? A real cock-up. This is the colonel. A real cock-up, as they say. Two of you dead because of a stupid argument. And our expected guest delayed by a monsoon in the Pacific Theater, and yet the clock is still ticking. Obviously, this is now a certain suicide mission for you, so it strips the objective down to its essentials. Soldier, at this moment, you may not think there's much difference between the Germans and us, but if we win the war, your family will live. Am I making myself understood, Bradley? And Bradley's there on, an, on another table, and he's got bandages all over him and a cast on his leg. No, I hear you. And in the background, he's thinking of his wife and baby girl, Sarge, and Maurice. So then we cut to the colonel, and he's looking at a table with a map on it, and he's he's got um, uh, Tully and uh, the, the scientist there. They should be approaching from the North Sea right about now. How do you rate our chances, Price? Tully, they're not great. Cap and the three of them could have rooked the entire camp. Bradley's objective now is to hit the main facility before he gets taken out. 
The autopsies tell you anything, Reinstein? Subjects A27 and A32 had both highly exaggerated thyroid glands, but such ferocious behavior can be explained only by unforeseen inherent native flaws. Well, let's hope Bradley can cover our butts just as well as you just did, Doctor. Sir, what is it, Corporal Himes? The costume. He what? Well, we can't abort. They're in radio silence. Gentlemen, we've escalated to a new level of deniability. And sure enough, we've got Isaiah Bradley in a Captain America uniform with a uh, V shield. Uh, that's a double V shield. Remember, Rick? Yeah. That's the... Uh... That's the victory against fascism and victory against racism uh, logo. Yep. And he's, he's uh, parachuting. And he lands, he uh, grabs his parachute, buries it like a good soldier. And then he, uh, he runs off. And he's in Schwarzabit, Germany, October 1942. And he's about to go hit the uh he's about to go raid that base and it says to be continued all right there's a lot in there man so bob i know we've been talking about the story as we've been going along but um yes this is uh this is a compelling story that it really brings uh to light a um a very dark period in, in American history um, by this fictional story that is based loosely on some, you know, uh, historic facts uh, and then tying it in with the, the Captain America mythos. Um, got to say, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. You know, I got to say, Rick, I've read this a few times over the years. I mean, it's, you know, every few years I pull it out and I read it. I read it, uh, you know, maybe six, seven months ago, right? And, uh, and I've been reading it again as, as uh, in preparation for tonight. And, uh, and, I, and I see something new every time, right? I mean, uh, one of the things that uh, we sort of talked about offline um, was this sort of use of the code name Joseph Reinstein, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's addressed here. That's, that's why we know that Joseph Reinstein, who was Erskine uh, in Captain America number one, is, is a different Reinstein uh, in truth, red, white, and black. And interestingly enough, the real name of this guy is, is Wilfred Nagel. And where have you heard that name before? Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Remember that, that dude working out of the, uh, the shipping containers who came up with the super soldier serum? Oh, flag? yes. Mm-hmm. That was Wilfred Nagel. Mm. So that's a callback as well. But the other thing that I, I don't think it ever connected with me before, uh, as many times as I've read this over the years, was the fact that they were supposed, the three remaining guys uh, were supposed to hook up with Cap right, to go on a mission together. And he was delayed in the Pacific Theater. Now, I don't know. I haven't looked at the timelines. Uh, I'd have to go back to volume one of Captain America, the Golden Age Caps, to see what him and Bucky were doing mm-hmm. at that time. Uh, but it may very well have been one of the Pacific Theater uh, stories. Oh, that, yeah. uh, that were addressed in Caps American number one. I'd be really kind of, I got to go back and look tonight to see what that was. But, uh, well, but then, just those sort of details are really cool, man. It really is. It's a, it's a, it's a intricate intertwined story. 
for sure. Um, and, you know, I haven't read uh, the last three issues uh, since I think the first time I read them. So it's been a while. Uh, so I can't remember exactly how the story ends. Um, so for those of you that, you know, you're only introduction to Isaiah Bradley is from the Falcon Winter Soldier. Um, and the story, how it goes there is that, um, you know, he puts on the costume and he goes to try to rescue one of his compatriots. Um, obviously that's not the case here, uh, but he does have on the costume. So I am kind of curious of what happens. And then um, there is a point, I'm pretty sure in this story where he is going to run into Steve Rogers. Oh yeah, we don't want to give it away. Yeah, we don't want to give that away. But yeah, absolutely right. There is no, but, a, there's there's a reckoning, right? And there yeah. is a uh, there is a meeting eventually. Yeah. All right. Well, I can't wait to see how the story ends. So, uh, come back next week for uh, episode thirty four, and we will finish this story, Truth, Red, White, and Black issues five, six, and seven. So that'll be good. I can't wait. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to diving back into these last, the last three issues as well and, and seeing what details I missed before. Cause uh, I bet there's, there's several in there. All right, Bob. Well, as always, it's been fun wrapping cap with you. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. All right. He's Bob Lucius. I'm Rick Fravonis and you've been listening to the Captain America comic book fans podcast. Thank you.